Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. When you have an imagination that's broad enough, you need to rein it in, and you use rules to rein it in. It's not like Sondheim couldn't have come up with rhymes on his own, but he had to limit them. It's not as if Wallace couldn't have invented a grammar on his own, but he very specifically didn't want to. Last week, I released the first half of this interview with DT Max, and this week's release is the second part of that interview. If you haven't listened to the first part, I suggest you start with that to make sure you understand the context of this episode. Now, on another sensitive subject, in your biography, you do outline several instances where David Foster Wallace was abusive in uh, certain relationships. He had what are referred to as uh, high romance, low intimacy relationships later Mm -hmm. on in life. He, He had complicated relationships with women, problematic issues there. And so what's your stance on on the age-old eternal question of separating the artist from the flaws of the man? How do you how do you see that question in this context specifically? Well, I mean, I, just as a, as a kind of a prelude to that, you know, I mean, the, the book chronicles some pretty violent behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know... It's in there. Yeah, I mean, there's a time where he... Um, tries to buy a gun to shoot the husband of a woman he says he's involved with, I mean, Mary Carr. And, um, you know, no one had reported any of this stuff before. And in fact, most people didn't, even his closest friends who knew something about that story had had it spun to them that it wasn't at his instance, and it clearly was. He punches a car window when he's angry. He throws a coffee table. He gets into a fight over a car accident. It's not exactly you know connected to a romance, but the point is he had you know there's a term in that Joyce Carol Oates came up with, which was pathography for um, a biography that only explores the dark side of a creative person. And I think she terms it for a biography of Alfred Hitchcock that came out in the seventies. Our standards have changed so much that we really wouldn't read a book. I don't know that we'd read a biography that wasn't at least part pathography at this point, but I had certainly thought that I had written something that wasn't unlike a pathography in in many, many parts of it. You know, so it surprised me that when it came out, Wallace was kind of rechristened, you know, St. David. And I was like, really? (laughs) I don't get that. And then much later during the Me Too movement, you know, the book narrates his his life. It's kind of associated with, but not really instrumental in rethinking Wallace's behavior because the people are still around to whom he behaved. And so I'd say two things, and I, and I, res- I kind of resist formulations, but, you know, I wrote the book to say what I knew. 
And I think it achieves that. Now, how his life is to be regarded is well outside of what any biographer can, you know, control or anticipate. You know, it seems to me it would be facile if we said in this world, and I'm not specifically referring to David, I'm actually thinking more of Celine, the French poet. Who I It's like you read my mind because he's the ultimate problematic author, obviously. Oh, yeah. So what are you thinking about Celine? What's your rule around him? I always knew Celine had this asterisk by his name. And I would not not read him because of that asterisk. And similarly, I would not not read Dickens because he was an anti-Semite. You know, I mean... I mean, early on, I was like, oh, Fagin's a Jew, and you know, so on, blah, blah, blah. And, and no piece of me felt that that would exclude him from my reading him. Now, with Wallace, we're talking about some somewhat different. It's actually probably closer to Celine being an anti-Semite than to, I, I mean, again, I'm, not, I'm absolutely not no expert on the histories of these people, but I think there are people post the publicizing of Wallace's darker side not the revelation of it which comes with the book but the publicizing of it who would say well he shouldn't be read and i get that i i don't think that's what's going to endure not with the information that we currently have i won't be the judge and i won't be the jury but it does seem to me that two things have happened among readers. There are some people, primarily in academia, who read him differently now and actually try to take his personal behavior into account in understanding him as a writer. So that's a fairly high level, but there's a whole generation, mostly female academics, who are doing that. So they had to make the decision, would they like not continue to read David Foster Wallace or would they... So they've taken that route. My instinct is that with uh, younger readers... The shock has worn off, the surprise element, and they um, just kind of accept it as part of the reality of this book that they're holding in their hands. Like, you know, they don't think St. David anymore. They think, you know, a guy with a problem. I don't know that he'll ever lose that tag. I don't know he ever should lose that tag. I see myself like as the author of this biography is really putting information out there I have not participated much in the conversation about Wallace since, mostly because I don't have anything new to tell people. I knew this stuff for a long time. <laughs> I mean, to me, it was surprising, again, how I, I really thought when I published the book that I was going to be losing you know, all my potential readers, or many of them, as well as friends, his family. I mean, I wasn't expecting... To, you know, it all depends on, on the individual tolerance. And you never really know. I mean, I write a lot of profiles for a living. You never really know what people are going to think of what's written about them. But in this case, he wasn't around. So you're really talking about the, the family and, and friends and relatives. You know, I make a couple of obvious cultural points. Tolerance for his behavior is different now than it was then. That's an obvious point. Yeah. And it was lower then than it was 50 years before. I think that that's a good thing. And Wallace himself was not proud of his behavior. So it's not as if you can turn to Wallace and see a defense for his behavior. He saw it as, as wrong and as weak. I don't know if that's a plus or a negative, but I mean, you know, there's, there's a letter I remember in the book where he talks about his kind of endless attempt to be seductive as being the, 
you know, he hated advertising, right? So it's ironic at the least or paradoxical that he, um, you know, is so interested in, he says at some point that what he despises about his behavior is because it's like being somebody who's always trying to sell you Tide. And I remember that when I, when I think about this stuff. So, you know, for me, it's just like, let's have this conversation in, in, in five years. Let's see how it evolves. And Yeah. Again, if I, if I could have done it my way, I'd have thought the book would have put the asterisk on him early on. But it's just not how people, I don't think people were looking for that at the time. You know, books get read in the culture that they're in. Right. Now, the most obvious question of this interview, what's your favorite book by David Foster Wallace? And the question I get asked a lot and what I'm going to ask you now is, what book would you recommend to someone who says, I've never read his work, where should I begin? I absolutely think that everyone who comes to this podcast because they like listen to your last podcast should start with the nonfiction and probably the book is supposedly fun thing, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very both charming and intelligent and exciting set of nonfiction pieces, but they're really experiential mostly. And they're one, the most famous one is about going on a cruise ship and it's completely beautiful and really masterful. Fantastic you know. piece. Yeah. I mean, to use a stunningly inappropriate turn of phrase, it's the gateway drug mm -hmm. for Wallace. And then, you know, I look, so I was early smitten by Broom of the System. I think for some people that remains, and I, for me, I, I'm not backing away from this, an absolutely divine reading experience, if you're that kind of person, if you like Stephen Sondheim's musicals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in the end, you you should come to Infinite Jest. And again, like a couple of just reminders, like it's not actually a hard book. It's not no. It's not Ulysses. No, no. And certainly not Finnegan's Wake. No. I mean, it, there's no deep attempt to foil the reader. There's a deep attempt to delay gratification, but not to foil the reader ultimately. I think the rule of thumb that I... Uh, used when I was reading it that somebody helpfully provided me with was if you can get past page 200, uh -huh. you're home free and you're going to love it. But you have to get to that pivotal point and then, and then you, you get into it. I think that's right. The only thing I would like say from my own way of saying it is, you know, if you don't want to read it, don't read it. If you, if, if you, <laughs> if enough. at page 60, you're uninterested, there's a lot of other things on this planet that might interest you. More. I mean, I, I think to the extent one takes it up as a challenge, which is the American cultural tendency, like lift this heavy brick, <laughs> I think you're probably looking at it slightly the wrong, the wrong way. I mean, it's meant to gratify. I mean, it's meant to participate a little bit in the very thing it's characterizing, which is the American urge and need forever for gratification. And so, you know, don't be afraid to be gratified by it. Don't insist that you're going to have a really arduous time. I mean, obviously, it rewards or is most naturally read by somebody who's really open to it. But I don't believe and have never believed that it's the wrong book to read in tiny pieces at bedtime. I think it's a perfectly good book to read in tiny pieces at bedtime. A lot of people go, well, I'm saving that for retirement. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm saving that. But I, I don't get that. I get that for some books. I don't get it for this book. I mean, I don't think you need to save it for retirement. I mean, it is long, but again, I lost like long, short, really, what's the difference? Like you read two books, you read one book. Exactly. I mean, it's a fallacy that a, a long book yeah. is more difficult or complicated. Yeah. I mean, for I mean, Middlemarch is the more exquisitely oh. pleasurable because it's long. Yeah. You know, who, yeah. 
to reverse Samuel Johnson's famous statement on Paradise Lost, you know, who would want it shorter? <laughs> and I agree with that with the Wallace. You know, I, I think that it's pleasurable. It's, you know, if I were at somebody's summer house and, and Infinite Chess was sitting on the shelf, everything aside from my history with Wallace, I'd pick it up and read it for pleasure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, to see the things I love, to dismiss the things I don't love so much, to see things I've never noticed before. You know, just to get out of my human life and into the interesting human lives of people who this guy, you know, in Syracuse and Cambridge and I think it's Alston actually, and, you know, was inventing, was thinking, you know, in, in the mid 1990s. I mean, that to me is sufficient. But I'm a, I'm not somebody who feels, you know, whenever someone says, is this book worth my time? Like, I'm just somebody who rebels against that instantly. Like, I'm, I mean, I don't, there's many, many books I start and don't finish, but at least in the world of fiction, the idea that a book has to be worth your time is, is kind of an idea that I dispute. Like, I just think, you know, there's a reason that people don't binge watch books. It's because you can put them down and they're done. Give it to the library. You know, give it to your local library if you don't like it. But the opportunity to enter into the imaginative world of somebody who's trying to give you a fully formed imaginary world. You know, I'm excluding certain kinds of genre fiction, which I just have a different purpose. But start with, you know, a supposedly fun thing. There's no, you know, so Wallach kind of put down his nonfiction, but I mean, a little bit of that's also a stance. I mean, I think he was actually not unproud of those pieces. You know, I think he thought he did a pretty good job on them. He gets more serious when he does his Roger Federer piece. And I would say, although there are beautiful moments in the Roger Federer piece, it's to me much less interesting than the earlier looser nonfiction, which I think, sure. frankly, part one reason it was more fun was it probably wasn't fact-checked quite so closely. <laughs> yes, it, he, did, he did mention that if, if he's writing nonfiction, you should expect a little bit of embellishment. Yeah, yeah, he says, just between you, me, and the understanding readers of the Boston Phoenix, which was <laughs> an right. alternative paper of the time. Like, if you <laughs> hire a fiction writer right now in fiction, you should expect a little bit of embellishment. So what what connects the book on, your latest book, on Stephen Sondheim to the work on David Foster Wallace? I mean, you must have had some inner desire to work with, with the two of them. What connects it? So, I mean, the Sondheim, just to brief your readers, is really a series of long interviews I did with him that were going to be, it's called a book called Finale, Late Conversations with Stephen Sondheim. And it's conversations we had that were going to go towards a profile that he kind of, he stymied and then he, he died. And so it became impossible to do that profile. And so it's in a way, on one level, the exact opposite of the Wallace, because I never met Wallace. And I did nothing but meet Sondheim. <laughs> now, I mean, it's, it was a decade between books. And, it, you know, there were obviously a lot of biographies that I was offered or I could have written, and none of which I wanted to do. And I actually kind of felt like one of those people who falls in love once in their life uh, and then never meets anyone as special again. You know, so with Sondheim, what drew me to the art was not that different from what drew me to uh, Wallace's art, really, although obviously on some level they could not be more different. But, you know, they both, I think... I think Sondheim uniquely among composer lyricists in what's not really generally a particularly profound occupation historically, but more of a Broadway toe-tapping. He cared too what it was to be a, a fucking human being mm -hmm. in Wallace's famous formulation. And I feel like shows like Company, Merrily We Roll Along, for all of your fans who are both 
Wallace and Sondheim fans like really do cover that ground and they even cover it in a way that I think Wallace if he ever saw them or would have would have seen them might have might have found you know, interesting certainly the, the the moral center of company is very much about growing up and what's the moral center of infinite jest about but growing up mm-hmm. and then when you get to like style you know it seems to me that both writers took a great deal of interest in the English language, in its possibilities, in its cadences, in its rhymes, especially Sondheim, obviously, on the rhymes. But but Wallace also, you know, if you read the famous Harper's article on, on English, the wonderful Harper's article on English, or even his interest in grammar, rules, creativity within rules, both of them, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things I didn't know about Wallace when I started the original New Yorker piece right after his death, I assumed a guy who'd written this big sprawling book wrote was a big sprawling kind of i just thought he just tried it on like he was basically the equivalent of um you know jack kerouac with the role of paper paper yeah. towel or toilet tissue yeah if, if that's even true but no he was very careful very very careful i'm very interested in grammar and in rules and in that sense he and sondheim actually would have had quite a bit to talk about because you know sondheim famously used a rhyming dictionary and you can't believe that stephen sondheim of all people would use a, r- a rhyming dictionary, but he did he use a knew. rhyming dictionary. Wow. Right, right. And I think that he used the rhyming dictionary for the same reason that Wallace was so interested in grammar, which is that when you have an imagination that's broad enough, you need to rein it in, and you use rules to rein it in. It's not like sometimes couldn't have come up with rhymes on his own, but he had to limit them. It's not as if Wallace couldn't have invented a grammar on his own, but he very specifically didn't want to. So, like, for him, he clings to, like, what's an... I remember his discussion of ergative verbs. Ergative verbs are verbs that both can take a direct object and not. So, a classic example would be smell. You know, I smell, but I or I smell it. Two different uses of the word smell. One transit, one intran. Anyway, the point is, he cared about that a lot. Uh, and so, they have that in common. Now, why... Would Wallace have gone to a Sondheim musical and, like, left after five minutes? <laughs> I, I can't tell you that and and i think sondheim actually might have enjoyed reading wallace he certainly i believe he liked ulysses actually although sondheim famously didn't read i think he might have read wallace because of the care given to the sentences but he may not have i mean he may have also looked at it and gone too sprawling too you know i think he might have been fooled by appearances and thought this is not you know the books he liked the few books he got through at least in his telling were Books like Catcher in the Rye, um, The Way of All Flesh, books that were really tonally really careful. A great Gatsby, I could have imagined him reading with real pleasure. So he could have enjoyed Wallace's work in that case. Well, I think he could have because, I mean, remember, he reads Ulysses and he he gets it. He gets why it's special. He gets why the prose is remarkable. But you probably had to persuade him. He had to get past the persona, right. which would not, I don't think would have been his kind of persona. But I do think genius finds out genius. So yeah. so that's what connects the two of them. Genius yeah. connects and, to genius. In the end. So so now we go to the lightning round. What the lightning five? round. Exactly. What a great way to put it. Uh, five quick questions. I'm very curious to know what, what you've been reading, what you've enjoyed. And my first question is always the same. What's your favorite book that I've never heard of? Okay. So there's a book I read recently that's, about 2,000 pages long. Huh. So it's a book called Duck's Newburyport. Oh, I've, I've read it and I love it. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. But a, a, 
A great call. What a fantastic book that was. Wait, I've got I've got one that may have fallen out of style. It was certainly extremely well known in its day, and I think is still a marvelous, marvelous book. But uh, is Harold Broadkey a writer anyone still talks about? No. Okay. Tell so, us about that. all right. So Harold Broadkey was very much in uh, in mode in the eighties, and he was a guy who was working on a book called Party of Animals that was never finished. It became kind of one of the most famous like not ever finished novels, but he wrote a short story collection that was available in vintage contemporaries when I was a reader in the 80s and 90s called First Love and Other Sorrows. To some extent, sort of the standard young man growing up, privileged young man, as we would now say. But for all that, I think very, very beautifully charts the emotional life of a person of that time. And the prose is just absolutely gorgeous. It's a story collection, but it strikes me as one of those story collections that can reach beyond the people for whom it was originally meant uh, and reach a new a new generation of readers. And I got to say, I'm, I'm, that that you would have read Duck's Newburyport and not heard of First Love and Other Sorrows just shows you that you know you never know. No, that the anxiety writers feel that they'll be forgotten is a is a valid anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Because I mean, Harold Brodkey was certainly going for the same brass ring that David Foster Wallace was. Is that right? Okay. I mean, and and, and explicitly going for the brass. I mean, he was explicitly wow. trying to write. The great novel. Oh wow! Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for that recommendation. Just from not just for my listeners, but for me. Uh, yeah, I would like. I, I would be interested. Well, I hope you. I hope you do uh, uh, pick it up. It's it's not not to undercut everything I've said up till now, but it's not long. <laughs> <laughs> you can polish it off in a night. What's a great book that you've read recently in the last twelve months? What's blown your mind recently? Okay, so I'm a member of a book club, and in our book club, we just read Joshua Cohen's The Netanyahu's. Ah, and I th- wonderful book. I thought that was spectacular. Yeah. I, I, th- I thought that was really as good as a novel, good a novel. I read a lot of novels. I thought that was as good a novel as I have read in quite some time. So I gave that one a, a total rave. I couldn't agree with you more, and, and particularly relevant in today's political context with what's going on in Israel. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But but just even on its own, I mean, to me, it's more of a kind of a pastiche of Roth, and but the writing, I think, is just spectacular. Yeah. On the flip side, what's a book that you found disappointing in uh, the last 12 months? What couldn't you finish? I know why you want that. I'd want it myself if I were you. Two things give me hesitation. One... You know, if you got far enough to get on my night table, I have a certain amount of respect for you. And if and if I didn't happen to cotton to you, it could well be because, like, you know, I'm I'm in Jersey. Maybe the red sauce on the meatballs was too garlicky, <laughs> and I'm not having a good evening. It's not you. It's me. Is what you're saying? Well, I'm saying I, I have a terrible memory, especially in moments like this. I'm not a very good um, syncretic thinker. Like the reason I'm not an academic. You know, is I I have friends who can say, you know, this book fits into the history of 19th century German romanticism, but you can also see the influence of uh, Walter Pater in it. And I'm like, really? Like, I just (laughs) thought the characters were kind of interesting and wonderful. So I will say, okay, here's one. I, I was surprised in reading Janet Malcolm's, who's a writer I admire enormously Mm -hmm. and who is very, very important to me. And really, I thought her crime of Sheila McGuff, if that's how you say her name, uh, was seminal for me in learning what I wanted to do as a journalist. 
I was surprised in reading her book on photography that just came out, which is really family photographs. And it was posthumous. So one has to put an asterisk and say, I, I don't know enough about his publication history to know if it was exactly as she wanted to come out or not. But I grew a little impatient with the voice. And that surprised me. And I felt like part of what had gotten her into the Citadel was that she was a woman who was mansplaining. And that somehow it was the novelty of that voice that people responded to, but I wasn't responding to it as much as I had previously, which is not to say there weren't moments I enjoyed very much, but I was like, I feel like Janet lighten up, like, you know, these are <laughs> lighten up on these things a, a little bit. So that's so disappointed. I don't know, but, but looked at it a little bit differently than the previous books. Yeah. Befuddling, yeah. we'll say. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe, th maybe think if I went back to journalist and the murderer, would it still be an absolute core work for me? I mean, I've always opposed her point in that book that journalists are basically elaborate confidence men, but that's subject for another, another, podcast, another discussion. What single book would you take to a desert Island? Well, I mean, I think pretty much have to pack up infinite chest given our, I think that's a great answer. I mean, I, I mean, it'd be kind of weird if I'm like, well, let's leave infinite chest behind, but let's take <laughs> sentimental journey. You know, I mean, you could learn I, it by heart if you want. Yeah. To. I mean, I wouldn't mind taking both. If you make extra room in the luggage, it's a little bit of a yin and yang thing, but I would do that. I just, let's take sentimental journey and, uh, uh, sentimental education. I mean, sentimental education, not the Lawrence yeah. sentimental education, the Flaubert, uh, and infinite jest. We'll do that. What book changed your mind? We can include nonfiction here. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. I should but it's a better question. question if it's about fiction. Mm. Yeah, it's a much deeper question if it was right. fiction. Right. Because, I mean, nonfiction, of course, changes your mind. That's why you read it. But a novel that changed my mind. All right. Here's something that didn't quite change my mind, but certainly gave me pause, as they say in the animal kingdom. So I reread parts of John Keegan's The First World War, which is, a, to my mind, an almost unreadable because so horrible and dry, a deliberately dry book about the First World War. And I did see in it so many parallels to the current war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say it changed my mind. And I was aware that there was a current of people saying, look at the First World War. You know, they tended to be on the conservative side, but not only you know, and be careful what you wish for. And so looking at that, and especially the first 50 pages about how a, essentially a peaceful Europe was drawn in by a series of alliances into a, a massive war. And again, I'm not, I think there are clear differences, but a massive war that no one wanted, I think was something that, that is useful to think about. You know what? I think that's a great answer. And uh, the analogy of Open new pathways is maybe as far as I would go. Yeah, but, but First World War, slide into war, I think is a great way to yeah. apply to the contemporary situation. Now, now to be fair, I, I'd probably seen an op-ed or two. I mean, I don't agree. Let me just get this out there that we have nothing at stake in the Ukraine. I think we have something very big at stake in the Ukraine. So I'm not, I can't tell you, not that anyone's asking for my decision about, you know, which weapons we should send to Ukraine. There's, there's very little of that asked of New Yorker journalists in general. And if they're going to ask a New Yorker journalist, they're not going to ask me. <laughs> but I do take an interest in it. And um, I just think that it reminded me that this is a real question, that although we live in a world of poetry, we govern in a world, to paraphrase Mario Cuomo, of prose. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. Happy to do it. Here's a quick recap of the books that DT Max mentioned during the interview. 
When I asked him which book by David Foster Wallace is the best one to start with, he chose Wallace's collection of nonfiction essays called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, which was published in 1999. If you read it, look out for the absolutely brilliant and hilarious final essay in the collection, which is also called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, in which David Foster Wallace writes of his time on a nightmarish cruise ship. D.T. Max's favorite book that I'd never heard of was Harold Broadkey's First Love and Other Sorrows. It's actually out of print, but you can find used copies online, uh, and it's a coming-of-age story. He also named the novel Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Ellman, which is a fitting connection to Infinite Jest as it is a 1,200-page novel composed of a single sentence told in a stream-of-consciousness style. It's absolutely amazing. His favorite book of the last 12 months was The Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen, which is an absolutely fantastic novel which I read and reviewed last year and which I highly recommend. The book that he found disappointing in the last 12 months was Janet Malcolm's Still Pictures on Photography and Memory, and he found himself to be a little bit impatient with the voice of the book. The book that he would take to a desert island is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Obviously, it's a massive book which can really benefit from a lot of rereadings. But if he had a choice to take a second book, he might take the book Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. It's one of the most influential novels of the 19th century. I highly enjoyed it and I really recommend it. And finally, the book that changed his mind was John Keegan's book, The First World War, which changed his mind on the way that nations go to war and how wise we might be to be wary of this experience of sliding into war through systems of alliances like in the First World War. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at litwithcharles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.